Our scripture reading this morning comes from the 8th chapter of Romans, verses 31 through 39. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sakes we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. This is God's word. Thanks, Susan. Uh, Good morning. My name is Drew Bennett. I'm one of the pastors here at Church of the Redeemer. Uh, If you're a guest with us this morning, we're glad you're here. Uh, Thank you. I want to say thank you uh, for allowing me, uh, the the elders, I approached the elders about taking a couple of weeks off just to recharge my batteries a little bit this summer. So thank you for allowing me to be out of the... I say the pulpit, but we don't have a pulpit. So out of the music stand for the last three weeks. (laughs) Uh, And thank you for your graciousness as a church toward the young men that we are trying to uh, raise up and train and so that we can send them out uh, to accomplish the mission and the vision of our church, which is to plant churches in the city of Winter Haven and beyond. So having those young guys come and you, you, you follow instructions well, you lean forward, you take notes, thank you. Uh, for being patient and being willing to, uh, to, to listen and make them great preachers. The only way you become a great preacher is for a church to put their love on you and make you a great preacher. So thank you for doing that. Uh, we are this morning uh, coming to the end. of We took five weeks to walk through the eighth chapter of the book of Romans just to kind of finish the summer up. Next week we're going to start a series on Proverbs that will take us all the way to Christmas. And so this morning we're, we're coming here to the end of Romans chapter 8 into these amazing, wonderful... Uh, verses that are really are kind of the peak in many ways of the entire Bible. Um, and what you notice maybe is I preached the first, uh, the first sermon in this series and now the last sermon in the series. And what I was struck by is Paul here ends Romans 8 at the same place that he begins Romans 8. So in Romans 8, 1, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Okay, Romans uh, eight thirty one and following, if God is for us, who can be against us? He uh, who did not spare his own son, will he not with him also give us all things? You know, if, if God has justified us, who can bring a charge against us? We are his elect. Who can, who can condemn us? All these wonderful gospel truths. He begins and he ends this chapter here in Romans 8 with these gospel exclamations. Exclamations of God's victorious love for his people that in many ways are really unparalleled in the rest of the scriptures. Okay, so Romans 8.1 and Romans 8.31-39 are two of the highest peaks in the whole Bible. 
But in the middle of the chapter, in between these, these two bookends of gospel exclamations, Paul talks about suffering. It's really a chapter about suffering. And Paul's very honest about a couple things. Let me just review. He's very honest about the reality of suffering. In Romans 8, 18 and following, he says it's inevitable. It's an unavoidable part of life. We live in a fallen world. The whole created order, Paul says, has been subjected to futility because of our sin and rebellion. And so the world is like a malfunctioning machine. And because the world is operating out there as a malfunctioning machine, we should expect malfunction. It comes in many varieties. It may be a physical weakness. It might be conflict in a relationship or loneliness or some kind of crushing sadness or the pressure of caring for aging parents or for young children who just won't sleep through the night or uncertainty about the future. I mean, I could go on. Whatever it is, Paul says there in Romans eight twenty-two that we grow, go through life groaning. <laughs> You know, that's, you know, we just go through life. This, this sense of this holy discontent and sadness, no matter how good life may be. We live in a world that's been ruined by sin, and therefore we should expect life to be full of trouble and heartache and groaning. There's a reality of suffering that we have to deal with. But then also, not only just the reality of suffering, he says in Romans eight twenty six and following, that there's a reason for it. So there's the reality of it, but there's the reason for it. And he says the reason for it is that it is the divinely appointed means by which God is fulfilling his purposes in the earth. And it's the divinely appointed means by which God is remaking us to look like Jesus. And so we live in a world that is fallen and full of trouble and heartache. And it's God's intention not to spare us from these things, but to use them in our lives to accomplish his purposes and conform us into the image of Christ. That's all the stuff in the middle of Romans 8. And that's why the Apostle Paul begins and ends this chapter in the Bible with these gospel exclamation, because the goal of the Christian life is not a life free of suffering. It's unreasonable. The goal is to suffer well. The goal is to face trouble and heartache and not lose your joy, right? To not, to not lose heart, like we read about in 2 Corinthians this week. And the way you do that is to be convinced in your heart of God's love for you, even in your pain and sadness. Jeremiah Burroughs is a famous Puritan pastor in the 17th century. He preached a series of sermons that became a book called The Rare Jewel of Christian Contentment, which is in my probably, uh, this, this is dangerous to say, but probably in my top three of things that if you ask me, what you should read, it would be one of the top three. Um, he preached the sermon series during an outbreak of the plague in England where he, where he was a pastor. So literally, the plague had broken out. People were dying. I mean, his congregation was being decimated by, by people falling over, literally, with sickness and in a few you know, days being dead. The rare jewel of Christian contentment. Those guys had moxie that preachers today don't. And his contention in the series that became the book. His contention in the book is that a Christian response to suffering, to use his words, he says, is a quietness of heart, a quiet trust and deep joy in God. Here are his words. He says, when affliction comes, remember, he's talking to people who are burying children who are dying of plague. When affliction comes, whatever it is, 
Here's, here are his words. You do not murmur or repine. You do not fret or vex yourself. There is a, there is not a, and he's, okay, 16th century. So there is not a tumultuousness of spirit in you. Not an instability. No distracting fears in your heart. No sinking discouragement. No, no unworthy shifts. No risings in rebellion against God in any way. Now, I want to make sure that you understand what he just said. Jeremiah Burr says that when life gets hard, if you begin to complain or feel sorry for yourself or are overcome by anxiety or you begin to crumble emotionally, that psychological emotional reaction is your heart rising up in rebellion against God. Complaining is rebellion against God. Distracting fears, what he calls. Sinking discouragements. They, oh, the, the Puritans just had a way with saying things. Sinking discouragements. Those are stirrings of a rebellious heart. I mean, is that hard to hear? <laughs> it's, I mean, it is for me too. And what, what Jeremiah Burroughs is doing is he's diagnosing our unbelief. He's diagnosing our lack of faith and trust in God to do us good in all things, as Paul says he will do in Romans 8, 28. And so in the middle of a hard week, I walk in the door and I begin to complain to Ashley about how bad my day was. You know, I've just got a terrible attitude a lot of the times. Or my favorite pastime is to invite her to the um, blowout pity party I'm throwing for myself. Right? What's happening in my heart? See, how's that unbelief? See, joylessness or anxiety or self-pity or the old word is murmuring, murmur, 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 you know, murmuring, complaining, all of those things. That's a heart that is charging God with wrongdoing. It's my heart protesting that I'm not in control and I'm upset about that. And if I were in control, I'd be doing a much better job of arranging my life than God has to this point. And if you know the Bible, if you're, if, you're not, you know, if you're new to Christianity, let me explain. And if you're not, you know the old stories from Genesis. And this is exactly the, the first sin of the man and the woman in the garden wanting to be at the control panel of the universe and unwilling to submit to God's authority and to live dependently upon him, but saying, God, the way you're doing it is not good. We want to be able to decide for ourselves right and wrong. We got a better idea. God, we have a wonderful plan for your life. And that's what's wrong with our hearts. And it comes out in all kinds of ways, but it comes out in joylessness and complaining and murmuring and anxiety and being overtaken by distracting fears, all these things. So how can you get your heart healed of these things? Well, the answer that Jeremiah Burroughs gives in this book and the answer the Apostle Paul is working, through, working towards in Romans 8 here is you have to, with eyes of faith, connect your whole life and especially the times of suffering and pain and heartache to the love that God has for you in Christ Jesus. So here's how he puts it again. Let me quote him one more time. He says, the truth, the truth, listen to this statement. The truth is that the afflictions of God's people come from the same eternal love that Jesus Christ came from. Do you believe that? Parents, I know you believe it about your children. But do you believe it about God's fathering and parenting of you? The the truth 
is that the afflictions of God's people come from the same eternal love that Jesus Christ came from. So Jerome, an early father, he quotes, said, happy, oh, excuse me, he is a happy man who is beaten when the stroke is a stroke of love. Now here are his words, Jeremiah Burroughs, all God's strokes are strokes of love and mercy. The ways of God, the ways of affliction, as well as the ways of prosperity are mercy and love to him. Grace gives a man an eye, a piercing eye to pierce into the counsels of God, those eternal counsels of God for good to him. Even in his afflictions, he can see the love of God in every affliction as well as in every prosperity. Grace, he says, enables men to see love in the very frown of God's face. Isn't that great? So let me ask, do you have eyes to see love in the midst of a frowning providence? See, the charge of a heart filled with unbelief is, you don't love me, God, or you wouldn't be letting this happen. You're holding out on me, God, right? That's Adam and Eve in the garden. God, you're not good. But do you see what that is? When I do that, and I do it all the time, I'm evalu- what I'm doing is I'm evaluating God's character on the basis of my circumstances. That's what the Bible calls unbelief. In other words, my life stinks. Ergo, God is not good. Faith is the opposite. Faith evaluates life's circumstances on the basis of God's character. So the field of faith is the exact opposite. Faith would say, wow, this is really hard, and I don't really know what God's doing in all of this, but I know that he loves me, and he's working all things together, even this for my good. You see that? And so the question before us this morning is, can we trust God? That's the issue. In our sadness, in our pain, in our conflict, In our troubles, can we trust that God has a plan which involves the heartache I'm going through that is better than my plan, which wouldn't include it? Because if we don't address the latent unbelief in our hearts, then when life begins to get hard, we're going to fall apart. And so we have to fight for faith. And that's what Paul is helping us do in these verses. And from these verses, I want you to see three things this morning. I want you to see Paul's method for fighting for faith. The content Paul uses to to fight for faith in his heart, and then the outcome, what kind of life it produces, okay? So there's a method, there's a content, and there's an outcome. I want to look at all three of those things from these these verses this morning, beginning with this, uh, first, just the method. And I want you to pay careful attention to what Paul's doing in these verses. I've said this before. I'm going to say it again. Paul is talking to his heart. And so when you're in the middle of a hard time, You have two options. You can listen to your heart or you can talk to your heart. And Paul is talking to his heart. And I I used Psalm 42 this morning because I wanted you to see how the psalmist really does this. The psalmist illustrates this really well. And so turn back in your worship folder to the call to worship in Psalm 42. It's going to be really important for us to understand what Paul is doing here in Romans 8. In Psalm 42, the psalmist is in the middle of a really hard time. He, he He is a blowout pity party. He's in the middle of one. He's really struggling. He he says in verse 3, My tears have been my food day and night. It's another way of saying he is sad and brokenhearted. He's just overcome with pain and sadness. Okay, but now pay attention. Here's here's what he says. Verse 3, My tears have been my food day and night while they say to me all the day long, Where is your God? Do you see it? That's amazing. Because what he's saying, my, his, his sadness is speaking to his heart. The pain he feels over whatever's happening in his life is causing him 
to begin to have deep questions about God's goodness. His heart's beginning to rise up. Do you see that? His sadness is speaking to his heart, and his heart is rising up with accusations about God. Where is your God? Okay, do you see that? Now watch what he does when this happens. See, when unbelief like this begins to creep into his heart and he begins, his heart begins to form accusations out of the sadness he's experiencing, what the psalmist models for us and what Paul's going to model for us is that he doesn't listen to his heart. He begins to talk back to his heart. He begins to reason with his heart. So look down in verse 5. He says, why so downcast, O my soul? He's talking to, his, he's talking to the inner parts of his life. He's saying, why, are, why so downcast, O my soul? Why are you in turmoil with him? He hope in God. You see, he's addressing his heart. He doesn't listen to the unbelief coming up out of his heart because of his sadness. He begins to preach the gospel to his heart. He can feel his sadness beginning to lead his heart into unbelief. And so he speaks right into it. He says, I'm sad. I'm sad. But, but why am I sad? I don't, I don't have any reason to be sad. So he's reasoning with his, his heart. He's putting the question to his heart. It gets even more explicit in verse 6. If you look down there, he says, My soul is cast down within me. Therefore, I remember you. And so when he begins to feel his heart moving into unbelief, he begins to say, I remember you. In other words, he intentionally turns his attention away from his circumstances and the cause of his heartache and begins to fill his mind with the, what he calls the steadfast love of the Lord, the chesed love of the Lord, the, the stubborn love of God that, that transcends and go beyond, goes beyond any circumstantial evidence whether or not God is for us or against us. That, see, that's faith. That's the movement of faith. He, he says, when I feel downcast, I'm going to put my mind on all of the ways you've proven true to me in the past. And if you keep going down there, you see what happens, what the result of his remembering is. I remember the Lord. He says in verse 8, the result of this spiritual discipline of my, my heart begins to talk, and then instead of listening to my heart and getting carried away with what it's saying, I begin to, to proactively talk back to it and put my mind intentionally on the good things of God and what he's done for me. And the result is in verse 8, he says, that the steadfast love of the Lord is commanded by day, and at night it becomes a song in his heart that remains with him. He's, do you see that? By day, the steadfast, by day, the Lord commands his steadfast love, and at night his song is with me. Well, what does that mean? In Zephaniah chapter 3, listen to these words. The prophet says, the Lord your God is with you. He is mighty to save. He takes great delight in you. He will quiet you with his love. He will rejoice over you with singing. If your faith is in the Lord Jesus Christ, God sings his love over you. And that's the song the psalmist is talking about. As he remembers the steadfast love of the Lord, he began to hear God singing over him. In other words, his habit of turning and remembering the steadfast love of God turned into a song that he carried around in his heart as he dealt with his sadness. And the result is he, his heart was quieted. That's what Zephaniah 3 says will happen. When you begin to sense God's love singing, God's singing over you, his love song, it quiets you. He will quiet you with his love the prophet says. So the love of God quiets your heart. In other words, it it counteracts all the things we talked about a minute ago. No murmuring, no fretting or anxiety, no distracting fears. Your heart gets quiet. And so for you, just to think, is your heart quiet? 
and whatever pain and sadness you... I mean, is your heart settled under the good hand of God in whatever painful circumstance you're having to deal with? If not, then come to Romans 8 and see how, like the psalmist, Paul models for us what it looks like to talk to your heart. He talks to his heart. That's what Paul's doing. He reasons with his heart. Notice here, back in Romans chapter 8. Notice... This, this, this really jumped out at me this week as I tried to take this passage in. Notice he's not making statements. When we quote these verses, we usually turn them into statements. But Paul is not making statements. He's posing questions. He's making arguments. He's doing logic with his heart. <laughs> he's saying, if this is true, then this is true. If, this, if, if, if we establish this, then... Here's the implication that leads to this. And so this is the practice. This is the method. This is how the psalmist does it. This is how Paul does it. You have to go into your heart. You have to begin to do logic with your heart. You have to begin to trace out the deep questions of the heart and provide answers and reason your way back to faith in God. I'll tell you how this works best in my life is through the practice of journaling. This is really what Ashley and I, I think, have both in just the last little bit have kind of discovered the way we really can manage our heart through the process of journaling. So I'll write down a question, you know, why am I so anxious about this? And I'll have to sit and think, and then the answer will come, and I'll write out the answer. But then often the answer will lead to another question, and I'll have to get kind of dig underneath that question a little bit, and so on and so on, until I get to the bottom, and I really figure out, okay, this is the real issue. And then what I've got to do is wherever I find myself, then I've got to argue my way back out. And just engaging with my heart. Through the process, I don't. It may not be journaling for you. It may be, I, but but this is the method. Paul doesn't listen to his heart. He reasons his heart towards faith and away from unbelief. That's the method. But the bulk of what I want to say this morning, what's in this passage, is the content. And there are five arguments that Paul makes to his heart to remember the steadfast love of the Lord. And let's walk through each of them together. Okay, and they're all listed there for you in your in your outline. Five five statements of truth. Paul states a truth then forms an implication from that truth that he's using to do battle against unbelief in his heart. Okay? Argument number one, he says, and I'm going to paraphrase them, but you'll see. In verse 31, argument number one, Paul says to us, to his own heart, God is for you. And if God's for you, who can be against you? See, the truth there is God is for you. Though the mountains be shaken and the hills be removed, yet my unfailing love for you will never be shaken and my covenant of peace will never be removed, says the Lord in Isaiah 54. Uh, For three weeks, at least the past two weeks, I can't remember if Terry did it three weeks ago, I have been made fun of uh, for my sophistication and my choice of movies to use as illustrations and sermons. So in an effort to repent, in the classic film, God is Bigger Than the Boogeyman, which is a VeggieTales movie. If you haven't had kids in the, kids in the era of VeggieTales, you've truly missed out. The guy's a PCA guy, by the way. I don't know if you knew that. Uh, the guy who really put those things together. Uh, Junior Asparagus watched a scary movie before bedtime and went to bed. <laughs> don't laugh. This is like serious stuff, man. He watched a Franken, Franken-Celery movie. And went to bed and couldn't go to sleep because he was so afraid of the monsters that were going to come into his room, as all kids are, and get him in the middle of the night. And so Bob the Tomato had to come and um, (laughs) preach the gospel to him and and taught him a song. And the name of the song was, God is Bigger Than the Boogeyman. 
He's bigger than Godzilla or the monsters on TV. Can anybody sing it with me? Yes, God is bigger than the boogeyman. And he's watching out for you and me. And, and all kidding aside, what Junior Asparagus learns are two very important things. That God is the biggest. That God is the biggest. And that he's on my team. And when my heart becomes convinced of those two things, that God is the biggest, and that he's, he's on my team, he's not against me. He's not on the other side playing against me, fighting against me. He's on my team. See, then that's a great illustration of what it means to know that God is for us and to live like it is. See, suffering doesn't mean God's abandoned you. It doesn't mean he's mad at you and is punishing you. Paul says to his heart, God's for me. God, even in this, God's for me. And if he, if he is for me, then who can be against me? It's a rhetorical question. The answer is nobody. I was in a fraternity at Florida State, believe it or not. And uh, one particular semester, I was in charge of the pledges and training the pledges and getting them ready for their initiation. And that particular semester, we had a guy come in and join the fraternity. His name was Modi. And this guy was six foot six, 350 pounds. Literally, we would have a party on the third floor of an apartment complex, and again, some of you this will make sense to, and some of you won't, and don't judge one another is all I'm going to say. But he would put a keg of beer on both shoulders and walk up three flights of stairs. Now, that's a man, can I tell you? (laughs) I mean, this guy was enormous, and the fate of his life rested in my hands, and so we became pretty tight. And what I found is as I would go out, and these guys, because they were my little, they were kind of like my little peons that had to follow me around and do what I told them to do because I, all I had to do was say, you're out, and they were out. They, they really wanted my approval and wanted me to like them. And so we would go around, and they would kind of follow me around. And I, and I, I found myself, uh, it was interesting to watch kind of the dynamic of, of my life knowing Modi was around. Knowing Modi was the strongest person in the room no matter where we went and that he was on my team made me a little more bold than I would have otherwise been and probably a little more mouthy. You know, see that guy over there? He's with me. Oh, okay. And this is what Paul's saying. If God is for you, if the God who spoke and the world came into existence is for you, who can be against you? And so here, dealing with, let's just, dealing with an enemy, with a persecutor. How do you talk to your heart? If you've got somebody who's acting towards you as an enemy. Psalm 27, the Lord is my light and my salvation, whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life, of whom shall I be afraid? Though an army encamp against me, my heart shall not fear. You hear that? Okay, we need to keep going. Argument number two. God gave Jesus for you. Not only God is for you, who can be against you, but argument number two, God gave Jesus for you. And if he gave Jesus for you, won't he also always provide for your needs. So the truth there is that God gave Jesus, his only son, to meet your greatest need. And the implication would be then, if God was willing to give Jesus for you to meet your ultimate need, that is proof that he will take care of every other need as well. It's an argument from greater to lesser. So look at the language carefully. Nearly every commentator points out that it echoes the story of Abraham, who, if you remember, excuse me, remember the story in Genesis, did not spare his own son Isaac. Isaac was the treasure of Abraham's heart, the thing he loved more than anything else in the world. And yet in Genesis chapter 22, the Lord told Abraham that he had to sacrifice Isaac on the altar, and and Abraham refused to spare him. 
he willingly offered his son in obedience to God's command. And, and the Lord's response as he raised the knife to slay his son, if you remember, was, Abraham, do not lay your hand on the boy, for now that I know that you love me, seeing that you have not withheld your son, your only son, for me. So God measured Abraham's love by his willingness to give up the thing he loved the most in the world to prove his love to God. And Paul says that in the same way we should measure God's love for us by his willingness to give up the thing he loved most in the whole world. His son, the Lord Jesus Christ, to meet our needs. And he's given, if he's given his greatest treasure to you, when you need a couple bucks, it's not a big deal. Okay, so talk to your heart. Deal with a practical, physical need. What's a practical, physical need you're wrestling with? Okay, can I trust God to do good to me and provide? How do you talk to your heart? You have to go to your heart and you have to say, look, God's already provided for my greatest need and given me Jesus. And if he was willing to do that, then he'll provide whatever I need now. And you've got to put the question, you've got to reason with your heart. You've got to do logic with your heart, okay? Let's keep going. Third, uh, the third application, third argument that Paul puts to his heart is just this. You are God's elect. Who can bring a charge against you? You're God's elect, Paul says. Who can bring a charge against you. So the truth is, there, you are God's elect. And here's what that means. And Steve got into this last week. Uh, but let me, let, me, let me say it again and let me reiterate it and maybe say it, you know, a little differently um, so that we can have this comprehensive understanding because this is a hard doctrine. This is something that's really, really difficult to get your mind around. But what I, what I, the way I would say this is, is the truth of election. The doctrine of election means that God does not love us because we first loved him. We love him because he first loved us. God does not choose us because we choose him. We choose him because he's previously chosen us. Theologians call this prevenient grace. And Anne Lamott, in her book, Traveling Mercies, defines grace as love that goes before us and meets us on the way. So what Paul's saying is is that God's love and grace and mercy towards us come before anything we do to get his attention or to earn his favor. In the very next chapter, in Romans chapter 9, which I'm glad we're not preaching through, by the way, because I'm not ready for that. Okay? Paul explains this a little further by using an illustration of Jacob and Esau, two brothers two that came out, you know, two, two brothers that came out of the womb at the same time. And he says, he, he says, God chose Jacob, the younger brother. He put his love on Jacob, not Esau, the older brother, and the rightful heir. He, he chose Jacob, not Esau, to be the father of the nation of Israel. And we're told that his choice in verse 11 happened before the two boys were born and had done nothing good or bad. And then Paul tells, the, tells us the reason why that it happened this way. In order that God's purpose in election might stand, not because of works, but because of him who calls. So God chose Jacob, not Esau. Why? Not because Jacob was the good boy and Esau was the bad boy. Not because of works, he says. God chose Jacob, and es- not Esau. Why? The only answer we're given in all of Romans 9 to explain this is where God says, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. And so if you're a Christian, I want to comfort your heart by telling you God's love, God loves you, but he doesn't love you because you're good. He doesn't love you because you're right. He doesn't love you because you're pretty. He loves you because he loves you. Not because of works. He loves you because before the foundation of the world, he chose to call you his own. God doesn't love us because we're good, but his love for us makes us good. And I know this prompts all kinds of questions about human responsibility and whatnot. 
But the biblical doctrine of election doesn't deny any of that. You need to hear that. It doesn't deny any of that. But theological wrangling is not the point. And please don't miss the point. The practicality of this is if you don't do anything to earn God's love, then you can't do anything to lose it. If you believe that, then when you mess up and do something stupid and somebody confronts you about it or your heart begins to accuse you, you say, I'm so dumb. See, there'll be a charge, but the charge won't have any teeth. The verdict of others won't, on your life won't stick. But if you still think in your heart, you know, God loves me because I'm a good person, then when something happens and it's pretty obvious you're not a good person, then it's like an accusation comes in. So this is the way you deal with a guilty conscience, right? That insists that, you deserve for God to punish you because you've been such a bad person. Do you see how, okay, we can, I mean, we can keep going. We need, to, we need to kind of brush through the last two. Argument number four. You're righteous in God's eyes. Who can condemn you? So the truth is you're righteous. In other words, God's love for you is not sentimental. There is a judicial act. The verdict is in. The gavel has come down. Right? There, God cannot change his mind about you. And the result is that there is no condemnation. God's not mad at you. God's not aggravated with you. He's not annoyed with you. He's not tired of you. You are righteous, not because of any righteousness that you've worked on your own. You're righteous because of the righteousness of Jesus Christ. He made him who knew no sin to become sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in ourselves. In him. So there's no condemnation. Do you believe? See, in the midst of pain, in the midst of sadness, there's no condemnation. There's no condemnation. And then argument number five. Jesus died and was raised and is at God's right hand. Who can tear you away from him? <laughs> Let me just read, read this passage of scripture and then we'll get to the last. One of my favorite scriptures. He says, what can separate us from the love of God? Jesus in John 10 says, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one can snatch them out of my hands. My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all. God's the biggest. And no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. See, my confidence to go out and live life is not in my ability to hold on to him, but in his ability and his commitment to hold on to me. Now, see, that's the, out, that's, that's, the, that's the content. So the method and the content. And we could, I mean, listen, do you, do you realize we could take five weeks and do, I mean, there's so much stuff here, it's impossible for me to get to it all today. But, but thirdly and lastly, I want you to see not only, not only the method and the content, but I want you to see the outcome. Because there's an outcome. See, if through the habit of talking to your heart, the content of these verses begins to sink down, then when you're forced to go through a hard time, you won't fall apart, you won't lose your courage. Look at what Paul says down here in these last verses. In, in verse 37, no, he says, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. So the result of this practice of talking to your heart and the truth of the gospel sinking down into your life is that you become not just a conqueror, you become more than conquerors. And so what that is, that's a Greek word that means a champion, but then it, there's a prefix that's added to it to mean not just a champion, more than a champion. And I don't know if you've been watching the Olympics, but my favorite moments of the Olympic Games is not when the Americans win, it's when they blow people out. Do you know what I'm talking about? 
Like, like, uh, the, the, uh, like the, I, I love, I know it's Nigeria or whatever, but I love that our basketball team beat somebody by 65 points the other night. That is awesome, because that, we don't mess with us. You know what I mean? Let's remember who's really in control around here. Right? China. <laughs> China wins ping pong championships and diving. I mean, that's, let's really, seriously, bring it on the basketball court. Let's go. Right? And they don't even let baseball in. Why? Because that's America's sport. Just saying. We, whether it's swimming, whether it's track. I don't know about you. I, I like the tight races, but the ones where it's like, oh, dude, he just blew them. Oh, that's all. Proud. See, Lee Greenwood, right? Proud to be an American. Where, that's just what. Because you just love to see your team just blow people out. That's exactly what Paul is. is Paul saying, if the love of God gets in your heart in such a way that, that, you know, that nothing can separate you, it'll not just make you a champion, it'll make you a, it'll make you a more than a champion. You'll, you'll just coast. You'll blow by people. That's what he's saying. So if when, when things start to get hard, you lose your sense of God's love, you'll falter, see? But if you're able to hold on to the truth of Romans 8, And what will happen is you'll have the courage to move through it and not give in to self-pity, to not be overtaken by distracting fears and sinking discouragements. Remember Jeremiah Burroughs' words? To use Paul's words in 2 Corinthians 4, you'll be able to be afflicted but not crushed, perplexed but not driven to despair, persecuted but not forsaken, struck down but not destroyed, right? So, So afflicted, struck down, even persecuted but not forsaken. That is, you won't lose the sense of God's love for you. You'll be as confident as ever. In God's love. You'll still have an abiding sense of God's triumphant love in your heart. And that's where the resilience to push through those things comes from. So look at that long list Paul mentions. He says, tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, dangers. None of these things are going to be able to can separate you from God's love. You'll be able to face death with confidence. The spiritual forces of evil in the universe, what he calls angels. The political powers of this world, what he calls rulers, they won't intimidate you. Even the uncertainties of the future won't cause you to live timidly. And the result will be, Paul says, you'll be more than a conqueror. In other words, you'll be able to move out into your life with confidence, with a willingness to take risks, put yourself out there. Verse 36, to be like sheep being led to the slaughter, to live generously towards other people, not live a nice, safe, comfortable life, but with radical self-sacrifice and boldness and courage and not being afraid to fail and not obsessively full of self-concern, an adventurous life. To redeem myself. At the beginning of uh, The Hobbit, which will be a movie soon, and I just finished reading it to my boys, Gandalf the Great Wizard comes to Bilbo Baggins with a proposition. He's looking for someone to share in an adventure he's arranging. And Bilbo's response is great. He says, of his people, he says, we are plain, quiet folk and have no use for adventures. (laughs) This is great. Nasty, disturbing, uncomfortable things. They make you late for dinner. (laughs) This is great. I can't think when anybody sees in them. We don't want any adventures here. Thank you. But what we're told in the book is that he comes from a certain line of hobbits called the Tooks. And that eventually, as he, as he met with Gandalf, the Tookish part of him eventually won out, and he went on the adventure, and he realized parts of himself that he didn't even know existed. Parts of, him, parts of his character and his person woke up in having to face trolls and having to 
journey over long distances and having to deal with the hardships of, of wintering on a mountain pass and of facing a terrible dragon hoarding the treasure of the, of the, of the dwarves and all these kinds of things. See, that's, that's Paul is pointing us today. He's saying if you can settle the issue of the love of God for you being so real and so tangible that nothing, dragons, trolls, hunger, discomfort, suffering, pain, the death of a friend, loss, heartache, whatever it might be, nothing can separate you from the love of Christ Jesus, then that will turn you into the kind of person who can wink and have a sparkle in your eye at the thought of going on an adventure. Whether that adventure be marriage, whether it be a church trying to engage a city, students, whether it be the adventure of the mission that God is going to give you in the school he's called you to this year. We can be more than conquerors. And let me finish with just this. See, what makes us more than conquerors, what produces this in our life is that we are not separated from God by our sufferings. Here's the amazing thing. Our pain and our sadness do not separate us from God. Instead, they are deprived of all power to do us harm, and they actually begin to do us good. They, are, they do not separate us from God. What, if you're a Christian and your faith is in the Lord Jesus Christ, then because of the work of Christ on your behalf, when you suffer, it doesn't separate you from God. It is the doorway into intimacy with God. Martha Snell Nicholson has a poem called The Thorn. And I would just read it to you. She said, I stood a mendicant of God before his royal throne and begged him for one priceless gift that I could call my own. I took the gift from out his hand, but as I would depart, I cried, but Lord, it is a thorn, and it has pierced my heart. This is a strange, a hurtful gift, which thou hast given me. He said, my child, I give good gifts and gave my best to thee. I took it home, and though at last, at first, the cruel thorn hurt sore, as long years passed, I learned at last to love it more and more. I learned he never gives a thorn without this added grace. He takes the thorn to pin aside the veil that hides his face. You want to know why Paul says we are more than conquerors? Our sufferings and our pain and our sadness don't separate us from God. They are the very doorway into intimacy with him. So turn up the heat on a mature Christian. Have you noticed this? They don't fall apart. Turn up the heat on somebody who really clued into the love of God for them. They seem to get stronger. They seem to get better. They seem to get less selfish. They seem to get more patient, more loving. Why is that? Because the thorn that's come into their life has pinned aside the veil that hides God's face. God is for you. Who can be against you? If he can do that in the midst of suffering, holy cow. So do you see how this can change your life? How if this truth became real to us, it would turn us into the kind of people who can change a city? That's what we want to be. And so let's pray that he would come and make us that. Let's pray. Father, thank you. I just, I just rejoice and glory in you and your wisdom and in your graciousness to give us these verses here in Romans 8 that are so, so powerful. And I pray that even now as we, as we sing in response to you, that, that you would move upon our hearts, that you would sweep over us with your love. 
that, that the, the reality of your love for us, despite anything we've done to earn or deserve it, would come and, and invade our hearts and turn all of our sorrows uh, into joy. Not completely. Sorrow mixed with joy. Joy mixed with sorrow, but that it would be a triumphant joy that would cause us not to, not to fall apart, not to break down, but to keep going. To push past the, the distracting fears, the tumultuousness of spirit, the, the unquiet heart that we might embrace whatever circumstances you've given us, knowing that whether it's good or bad, whether it's sickness or health, whether it's pain or an adverse, adversity or prosperity, that you are good and you're doing us good and we can have complete confidence of that. And may our faith truly make us more than conquerors, that we might bear fruit in our city that will glorify you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. If your faith is in the Lord Jesus Christ, then the gospel exclamation in this benediction is what you need. I mean, this is where you find the courage to go, but out into whatever sadness or sorrow you meet with on your journey. Whatever the adventure is he calls you to, here's the promise, that he will go with you. That God truly is with you. Therefore, go into all the earth and make disciples. That's the, pro- that's, that's the call at the end of Matthew's gospel, right? And so you need to stretch out. We, did, this is, we received the benediction by, by putting our hands out in front of us as if to say, oh, this is what I need. What the, the words that are now coming are the very thing my heart needs the most. And so uh, as you reach out your hands, I raise my hands over you uh, to be able to pronounce the blessing of God on your life. Is your, if your faith is in the Lord Jesus Christ, hear these words and be assured that he truly is with you. And that he loves you with a triumphant love that surpasses anything you might encounter on your journey. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face towards you and give you his peace, both now and forevermore. Amen. Go in his peace.